Hello everyone and welcome back to Footprints. We've a real treat for you this month as we take to the water in the first of a two-part canal and river journey around Bath. Starting at the Angelfish Cafe, I'll be meeting Patrick and Derek, who are aficionados of the heritage and history of the Somersetshire Coal Canal. I'll be travelling as far as Claverton Pumping Station near Worley Weir, where Julian will show me round. And in between, I'll encounter birds, wildflowers and a couple of boat dwellers. But how will I get there? Well, let's find out. So here we are, paddling along the Somerset Coal Canal with Dan Merritt, boss of Bathscape, and his daughter Bee. It's a beautiful sunny day. Was that a blackbird or a robin, Dad? We've got a robin, I think. Yeah, mostly got blackbird as well. Got chiff chuff. Dan, I think this was your idea, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. That's my daughter. She's got her exams next week. So I thought I'd bring her out for a bit of a treat and we'd go down the canal. I thought, well, we'll take you with us, Pommy. Can explore the canal a bit. I'm crashing your family day. We're going down the Somerset Coal Canal and in a minute we're going to hear from Derek, who's going to tell us all about the Somerset Coal Canal. And we're going to end up at Dundas and then we're going to paddle on to Claverton Pumping Station where we're going to meet a couple of guys who are going to tell us all about that. <laughs> what a fantastic day. <laughs> and we're just going past Poppy now. Oh, and Poppy has got loads of actual poppies growing on the back of the boat. Dan has just told me that the ice cream boat that I was looking forward to has turned into a pottery boat. That's not quite the same, Dan. It's not quite the same for Bee, is it? She'll be slightly disappointed with that. Keep, keep rowing, Bee. She could have a pottery class, it says. Would she be happy with that? We'll find out. <laughs> and we thought it would be fun to stop at the pottery boat and see if we could find them and find out what they do. Gently take us in. I think I'll get out first. first. Uh, my name's Jess. Jess, and you're a potter. That's right, yeah. Um, I run Towpath Pottery. Fantastic. We just paddled past you and noticed that you're doing pottery classes on the towpath today. Tell me more about that. Um, yeah, so I've been doing this like kind of since um, lockdown. Lockdown, I can't remember which one ended. Um, and um, yeah, people can come along and learn how to make a pot and a taster session for about 30 minutes um, and I'll get them fired and you can come back and glaze them and pick them up. And it's kind of a good opportunity to, yeah, try out pottery. If you don't want to fork out like hundreds of pounds for like a big course, you can see, is this for me? And yeah, I love it. 
And how come you're doing it on a boat on, well, right by the Dundas Aqueduct, aren't you? Well, I have to move every couple of weeks and this is one of my favourite spots. And so I'm here this time, but sometimes I'm at Bradford and Avon, other times in Bath. And so, yeah, it's roving. So you're a pottery class on tour? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's fantastic. So you've got a whole new clientele every, everywhere you go. That's the idea, yeah. And, yeah, also selling my pottery too that I make my workshop in Bradford-on-Avon. So when you f- say you fire the pots, you do that in Bradford-on-Avon? Um, so the biscuit firing, the biscuit firing I do in the Bradford-on-Avon, but then I've got a little gas kiln, which I'll bring out later, um, to do the glazing. Oh, you've got bar. that here? Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's incredible what you've got, because you've got a wheel, you've got loads of clay you've got lots of boards you've got yeah it's a lot of stuff to um bring in and out of the boat in the morning but <laughs> and put back when you're really tired but it's worth it and do you think you'll get many takers yeah i've got a few bookings um so yeah i'll see them later on just show me around some of the pots that have been made here cool. tell me about the glazes and the pots um, okay, so these ones here are stoneware, um, which I've made in my studio. Apart from this one, um, this is my favourite one. It was taken to a wood fire kiln down in Devon with a potter called Nick Collins and Sabine Nemet. They do they have massive, beautiful wood fire kilns, and so we spent three days chucking wood in a big hot fire to get the kind of details that you can see on there with the ash and how that's settled. Um, that's that, that is very beautiful. It's sort of. Oh, it's got a sort of lustry, glittery quality to it, hasn't it? Real depth. Thank you. Lovely. <laughs> but yeah, these are the ones that are um, done in my kiln on the towpath with the terracotta clays, the low fire clays. Got a little robin saying hello. Yeah. Hello. Um, and I try and get the kiln into reduction, and that's why the clay goes from the red that you see over there to this kind of dark, kind of almost metallic brown. Fabulous, and that's a little egg cup. Yeah. Oh, so you've been pottering for a long time? I learnt at art school and was doing care work for years and then decided to make a break for it, see if I can do pottery. And um, so I've been doing that for a yeah, year and a half, kind of full-time. Well, congratulations. <laughs> that's fantastic to follow your dream and be on a narrowboat. Yeah. It's just amazing. Might as well give it a go. Oh, you've got more pots on the roof. Look at those. <laughs> <laughs> they, look, coming out with they look quite watery as well, some of them. Mm. Yeah, those are the ones that they are raku-fired. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Might have seen that on the old pottery throwdown. <laughs> so you can find Jess at Towpath Pottery, Instagram, Facebook. Follow her boat and come and do a fantastic pottery class. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you as well. What a surprise. <laughs> So we're just past this beautiful bank. It's absolutely full of wildflowers. Do you know what they are, Dan? Wild angelica. We've got some nettle. We've got some herb robert. And we've got um, heart's tongue fern. It's mostly growing along the bottom there. Bright green. Looks like a deer's tongue. I've never seen a deer's tongue. Well, that's just what it looks like, Paul. <laughs> Possibly not as green as that. The herb robber, is that the pink one? Yeah, yeah, it's geranium, so, yeah. Geranium robertiana.
So I've just bumped into Craig, and you live on the canal. Yeah, yeah, I've lived on, I'm a continuous cruiser, which means you have to move every two weeks. Everybody's a continuous cruiser unless you've got a mooring. Right. You have to pay extra for a mooring. So, okay, okay, yeah. so you just keep moving. You have to, yeah. But presumably you know most people who just keep moving, so it's like a, a continuing mm. moving community, is it? You do and you don't. The surprise is you may see them, you may not see them for two or three years as they do their routine. And if you change your routine, you may not see them for a while, which is kind of nice. You'll meet somebody and they'll go, I know you, and you'll be like, oh, hi. And although you might meet them quite regular, regularly, you have to do a minimum distance in a year. So here it's Bath to Devices. You have to do that to prove that you're continually, you know, that you're doing a decent amount of mileage. And what made you decide to take up this life? <laughs> well, I lived with a great person in Bath and, you know, we split up and sold the house. So I had £30,000 and a bit insecure about what I was earning and my supply teacher. So I thought, OK, how do I reconcile that and how do I have the next adventure? So I looked on Apollo Duck, which is the biggest boat website. It's mad. It's crazy. And then finally went and looked and bought a boat and said OK to the next part of my life. So now I'm coming to the end of that section. So the next section is the sea and the mountains. That's the next bit. So, yeah. Craig, what a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much. You've really illuminated <laughs> some of the, the life on the canal. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to meet you on the journey. <laughs> That's the sound of the hydrophone. Just in the wake of the front of the canoe. It's really tuneful. Oh, look, here we are with the ducklings again. Oh, this is just idyllic. Ice by Derek on the side. I'm Patrick Moss and I'm chairman of the Somersetshire Coal Canal Society. I'm Derek Hunt, committee member of the Somersetshire Coal Canal Society. And I didn't know, even though I've been here many, many times, that this was a different canal to the Kennet Naven. Yes, it is a different canal. At the moment, there's only about 600 yards of it. I know just how long it is because I walk it every time I park my car and go to my boat. It was built at the same time and they were planned together. Their Acts of Parliament were actually passed on the same day in 1794. So they were, they were planned together and the Somersetshire Coal Canal as its name implies, was to bring coal from the North Somerset coalfield. The proposal was to Bath. That had been the market that had prompted the building of the canal because they were losing out to coal that was coming by sea to Bristol and then up the river and the, because their own transport over land was too expensive. But actually the Kennet Avon Canal carried Somerset coal to many destinations and other cargoes along its own route, and then other connecting canals. Somerset Coal, as a result of the Kennet Avon Canal and other canals, ended up in Oxford, for example, and in Abingdon. So this was the driver for the transport economy of the time. And in many ways, the Somersetshire Coal Canal was the broadband internet of its day. They needed it because other people had water transport and they were losing out in the marketplace to those other areas, the Forest of Dean, South Wales, because they had water transport and the Somerset Coalfield around Paulton and Radstock hadn't. 
and therefore their costs were higher and they were losing out in their own local market in Bath, 10 miles from Portland to Bath, and yet they were losing out to coal coming in from the forest of Deenham in South Wales. Fascinating. And did you say five or six hundred yards has got water in it? Why is the rest all dried up? The canal went out of business in the um, late 1890s because of railways, really. The railway system was much more efficient. It was integrated. Canals were very independent operations. But the technology of rail meant you could move coal. And so the Somersetshire Coal Canal became derelict. And where we're standing now, here at Dundas Basin, this was also filled in. And uh, it's only, what, um, about 25 years ago, 30 years ago, that it was restored and it's been put back here, as you can see, as moorings or a mini marina, if you like. And it runs up to the A36 and the tunnel still goes underneath. But I'm afraid when you get the other side to Moncton Coombe School, you'll see a dry bed. But when you get to the other end, which is Timsbury and Portman Basins, this is a cul-de-sac canal, in other words. It goes there, it doesn't link with any other canal except the Kennet and Avon at this end. We've got about um, 800 metres back in water there. So you've got water both ends. What's going to happen to it? Is it going to have water all the way along? That's the aspiration, but it's a big job. We've got a canal here. From here, from where we're standing now, to Timsbury Basin is about 10 miles. And there's a flight of 22 locks at Coombe Hay as well. Now, unlike many canals, it hasn't been obliterated. There's no housing estates built over the line or anything like that. But it has had 120 years in round figures of neglect and its ownership was broken up when it was, you know, the the Great Western Railway first of all bought it but then they sold off the bits of canal they no longer wanted for their own purposes. So there's over 80 landowners on the way between where we're standing now and Porton Basins. So there's a big logistical problem of assembling land ownership and a big problem of undoing 120 years of the canal being unwanted. And that doesn't come cheap. But our big aspiration, we start small steps. We've already promoted a walk from one end of the canal to the other that as far as possible follows the line of the canal. And what we're aiming to do is to make it a corridor that people can benefit from and enjoy the immense beauty of the Cam Valley and the Midford Brook Valley and also enjoy the heritage because we've got structures on the canal that are 220 years old and untouched for the last 120 years. They never saw a motorised boat go through them because the canal died before boats were motorised. So we've got such splendid natural and and built heritage along the route and our big aim is to get people to enjoy that, bring it into beneficial use for the community along it and for visitors to the area who in turn will enjoy the rest of the area and, let's be honest, also spend money in the area when they get here. So that's our aspiration. Do it a bit at the time. Eventually, it'd be great to have boats back to the other end of Porton, starting from here. But small steps, bits at a time. Derek, you've co-written the book, which is the walk, a set of walks taking us back. Just tell, tell us briefly how the landscape changes as you start from here and you end up in Porton. 
So we're stood here close to the Dundas Aqueduct, which is a magnificent structure, um, very similar to Avoncliff, just a bit further, a few miles along the Gannet and Avon. And so from here, this is the Trancor setting, what we want to do is take people on that journey, which brings us from the restored section here, with boats moored and canoes going up and down the canal. And then we go over the main turnpike road, the A36, we go through Monkton Coombe School, and now you're in the tranquil setting of the Midford Valley, shortly going on to the Cam Valley. And as you go along, you pass through interesting locations, really significant locations, particularly for geology. And there's the history of William Smith, who was the first economic geologist, if you like, the first applied geologist. And what he said was, rocks are laid in an order. And that's how they were able to find the coal and other minerals and also, of course, manage water. You had to make sure that your mines didn't flood and William Smith was an expert on that. And then the landscape changes because as you get into the Cam Valley at Dunkerton, you will see in front of you a huge artificial mountain. In Somerset terminology, it's called a batch a spoil heap. It's not a slag heap. Slag comes out of um, uh, industrial processes. It's the stuff you don't want when you've dug the coal out. Coal seams in Somerset are narrow. If you've got an 18-inch seam, that's good. Compare that to, say, South Wales, when you have seams of many, many feet. And you go past this post-industrial landscape, and it's all mellowed beautifully. It's rewilded. They did some rewilding at that time, of course, because when the batches became um, well, no longer required, they actually planted them with trees, with pine trees, and they became pit props. So they were quite good at um, reusing, recycling. You know, it's not a new thing. These things were done. Then you carry on through past there and you go to the very different type of coal mining. Dunkerton was an industrialised one. That's why you have huge batches, huge spoil heaps. When you go down the Cam Valley towards Timsbury and Poulton, you don't see the same thing. You see very much the smaller ones, mainly family-operated type coal mines. And they were the ones that originally got worked out by the sort of 1860s, 1870s, and therefore the canal started closing a little bit from the far end at Timsbury Porton Basin. And new coal mines came on, of course, the uh, Withy Mills Colliery, which wasn't there when the canal was built. But those coal mines could be built, could be sunk, because the canal was there. They had the transport network accessible. And as Patrick's just said, the coal would have come right past where we're standing now on narrow boats and it would have gone either left there down towards Bath or out to Wiltshire and its huge markets were places like Trowbridge because of the cloth industry, Bradford-on-Avon and Chippenham. Patrick, how does the Somerset Coal Canal connect with Bath and how Bath was built? Well, the coal canal was built in, it opened in 1805. Now, that was, that was before the Kennet Avon was finished, but the Kennet Avon was navigable to Bath at that time. And actually, the coal canal company had their own wharf in Bath. Now, that was about the time that Bath was growing dramatically. The areas we now think of historic were new then. 
and coal. The reason coal was transported, it's not a product, it's not an end product, it's energy, it's fuel. And Somerset coal was particularly good as domestic coal and later as coal for town gas. If you wanted steam, then South Wales coal was better. But Somerset coal was particularly good in domestic fires. And back in 1805, every house, every room was heated with a fire, particularly grand houses. So the landscape you see in Bath now, that built environment of all those ranks, rows of big houses from the Regency period, they were powered by coal that came from the Coal Canal. The landscape up the Coal Canal shaped the landscape in the middle of Bath. So if our listeners want to find out more about the canal and the Somerset Coal Canal Society, how can they do that? And how can they get hold of your walk booklet? Everything's on our website. So our website is uh, www.coalcanal.org. All the information is there. It is a comprehensive, probably encyclopedic website. And it is from there that you can either download the Coal Canal Way booklet for free or you can purchase a copy for about £4 and that's done via the website as well. Patrick, Derek, thank you so much for both being here today and telling us all about the Somerset Coal Canal. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much. Thank yeah, you. Fantastic. It's been great. Let's go and have a coffee. So we've transferred from the canoe to an electric bike, which is not like any bike I've seen. Tell me about it, Dan. This is the, the best day, I have to say. <laughs> this is my wife's bike. It's meant for putting small children. We have two kids that we put on the back. But I've put you on today, Pommy, so we'll see if it works. It's fantastic. It's bright red. And... Uh, it's electric. Well, here we are, cycling along the towpath to Claverton Pumping Station. We're in wild country now. The bit between Dundas and Bath City Centre. Oh, look at that boat. It's got a garden on top of it. It's absolutely full of lush plants. And there's a paddle border coming past. We're in the Limpley Stoke Valley. And over to the other side of the valley, we can see Conkwell Woods and Worley Woods. And the Clapperton pumping station that's coming up is right by Worley Weir. So that's the A36 in Clapperton there. And we're dropping down. This is the bridge over the canal, which we're going to take the path down, which will lead us down to Cleverton Pumping Station. So this is the bit where we go from the canal to the river. So we've walked down the hill from the canal and reached the railway. And we're going to cross the railway. It says we can, it's green. And then on to the pumping station. Which is just there. Just the top oh, of the it's just there. there, I can see it. OK, let's go. If you can push the gate open, I'll get my bike through after you. Just so I'm not caught halfway with it. Okay. So we're just standing outside the main pumping station itself with the biggest water wheel I've ever seen. What do you think of that then, Dan? <laughs> That's pretty impressive, isn't it? What could that run, Pommy, do you think? 
It's like 15 foot wide wheel, isn't it? It's amazing. Yeah. Um, we're obviously not experts enough. I hope there's some, some people know, know more than us. Do you know, we're not experts. <laughs> and we've come here to meet Julian, who is an expert. I'm Julian Sterling. I'm the lead volunteer here. The pumping station was built to put water from the river into the canal to keep the canal topped up. So when you build a canal, you're basically cutting a ditch through the country. It doesn't have water in it, so you need to pump water in. An ideal canal would be in a place with no hills, so you put water in once and the water stays there. Unfortunately, we've got lots of hills, so you survey a canal to have one big apex in the middle, you put water in at the top, a lock full of water should go with each boat, and so you only need a pumping station at the top of the biggest hill in the, uh, at the top of the main hill in the middle of the canal. We're not in the middle of the canal, that's Crofton Pumping Station. The reason why we're here is there's actually geological faults in that hill, and so this area was always leaking. So the canal opened through in 1810, we opened in 1813, just because they were losing water so much that they had to build an extra pumping station to keep it in water. So we've got these pumps here. These are lifting 50 gallons of water each time, uh, each time the uh, piston lifts. So if you think of a big oil drum, that's a 45 gallon drum. Imagine taking uh, one of them 48 feet up to the canal. That's what this is doing about every two seconds. And it all relies on that piece of rope there sealing on the inside of the pipe, because that both stops the water running out when it lifts 50 gallons up, but also causes a vacuum and sucks 50 gallons up behind it, filling the pipe ready for the next pump. And we have a picture on the wall of a guy. The machine broke in 1952, didn't run again until 1975. So the inside of the pipe filled up with so much rust that there was no way it was going to seal. So he's in here with what's called a needle gun, which is basically lots of tiny hammers smashing the rust out. So now, even with earplugs and ear defenders, it would be too loud to do that job. Horrible job. But I assume he's deaf now. But what he did is he climbed in through those hatches and cleaned off all the rust. And they were so worried he'd get stuck. They've got this extra safety rope thinking that they couldn't pull him out the bottom. They could at least try and pull him out the top. But this rope, so this seal, it's this wide. So if you look here, even if you chop my arms off, I'm not getting in that pipe. So he must be a very thin guy who was very dedicated. It's a good job we restored this in the 70s because they wouldn't have let us do that now. Are we at the very top now? Yeah, so you've got these sort of rocking beams that are sort of just slowly moving backwards and forwards like a seesaw. So on this side of the building, you've got the water wheel. That's on the left. And on the other side, the pumps are very much like they would be on a steam engine. And in fact, these beams are steam engine beams. You can see that connecting point on there will connect the same sort of linkage that you have to keep the pistons going straight up and down so that you could have a steam piston on this end and you have a water pumping piston on the other end. And so they've basically taken the pattern for a steam engine and gone, we don't want to burn all that coal and we've got the river nearby. We just connect a water wheel up, but otherwise it's very much steam era technology. Some of it's delicate and some of it's absolutely vast lumps of metal, isn't it? Painted a beautiful green and red. Tell me what you do here. I'm a volunteer. I'm currently an engineering student at the University of Bath. Um, I'm finishing up my PhD. Um, so I wanted to get some more hands-on experience. And it's just such a cool, unique place to be able to learn about the history and also get your hands dirty and work on everything. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And what's your PhD about? 
mechanical engineering. It's actually about uh, 3D printing. <laughs> so, oh. yeah, yeah. Any use for 3D printing in this kind of setup? Actually, yes. So the model we have over there, when we needed to repair the model of the gear teeth on the flywheel, we actually 3D printed that bit and painted it. <laughs> so will this figure in your PhD thesis? I did actually mention the Clapperton pumping station in my acknowledgements. So yes. <laughs> oh, brilliant. That's fantastic. Lovely to meet you. Thank yes. you so much. Thank you. It was good to meet you too. This is a nice cosy room. This is your mess room, is that right? This is where people have taken their tea since we've got this photo here from 1936 of uh, men from Swindon Works that have come down from Great Western Railway Works to uh, maintain when uh, some parts of the machinery broke. So they'd send whole teams down here, they'd sleep up in the attic here, they'd sleep on the floor here, they'd pile more in the cottage to sleep. So they'd have huge teams here when they needed to do maintenance. And so this would have an open fire, it would have been the only place that was uh, kept warm. So that range, the coal range, is actually the original one from the engineman's cottage. And so that's what they would have had their uh, dinner cooked on. And can you use it now, Julian? Yeah, so it's been fully restored. I burnt the mince pies in it this Christmas. So uh, it does it does work. It's uh, It would be better if we kept it running the whole time and kept it hot. So it's only run periodically, but it, it does work perfectly fine. This is a, a very soothing part of the pumping station, Julian. Tell me what's happening here. So above your head, there's lots of bars. We call them linkages. And so this is making sure that the piston rod goes straight up and down. Because if we attached it to the end of the beam, the beam is rocking backwards and forwards like a seesaw. The end of it's carving out an arc. So if we attach the piston rod to it, the piston has to move straight up and down. So every stroke, it would bend the rod twice. And it really wouldn't last too long. But having all of these bars, each one of them has a bearing on it. Each bearing's got a little brass cup, which is full of oil. So, and so you need to keep them in oil, otherwise it's going to uh, seize up. And so they need topping up about every six to eight hours. Back in the day when it was running full time, they wouldn't have stopped the machine to do it. So you think, this machine, there's 34 horsepower going into it, it won't notice if you get in the way, it's just gonna hurt you. And our first engineman did this job into his 80s. And every six to eight hours, that means it would have to happen at night. So imagine, as you walk through, a guy with a candle in one hand, an oil can in the other, in his 80s, leaning through the active machinery, trying to keep every one of those oilers topped up. And you can see the water here. If we pressured all the way up to the canal, there'd be water spurting out the top of that seal. It was before they had the drip tray. So imagine water spurting up, oil dripping down. You're in your 80s with a candle in the dark trying to keep it oiled. It really is the industrial revolution here, just in a beautiful Limpley Stoke Valley. It's extraordinary. And this, this, well, this room has got spanners. Well, they're bigger than the ones in my toolbox. They're probably a metre long, aren't they? They're extraordinary. Look at the tools on this bench. My dad would have been drooling. Yeah, so most of these tools are actually railway tools. So the railway bought the canal in the 1840s. It was the competition for transport. And so for most of its working life, this was owned by the railway. 
And so those spanners on the wall there are stamped uh, Great Western Railway. And in fact, most of our tools are uh, Great Western Railway. And in fact, there used to be a lean-to on the side of this building. And so some of the tools would have even been made here. This is the blacksmith's vice. And when we were downstairs, his anvil's there. So we still use the anvil sometimes. Normally, we don't have a forge, but we can still hit things and make them straight. But this is like the opposite of a doll's house, because everything is supersized rather than miniature, isn't it? It looks like my dad's bench, but four times the size. Yeah, I mean, especially this bottom spanner. I've not actually found anything to use it on, but I do like every so often just holding it up and feeling a bit like a pixie. But uh, uh, ch children like uh, trying, to, trying to see if they can lift the spanner. That's, that's a good game. We can't really get in there today because the pump's running, but if, we, if it's static, we can sort of pass the spanner out and see, uh, see who can hold it. It's sort of a, it's sort of a King Arthur thing of uh, can you hold the spanner, can you take over? It's extraordinary. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Yeah, thank you very much. So we've just walked down from Claverton Pumping Station to Worley Weir, which is a very popular swimming and paddleboarding spot. It's absolutely rammed with people who've brought their bikes here and they're having picnics and they're standing in the water cooling down and there are dogs and the beautiful weir which, as Julian just told us, Dan, is not a natural beauty. It's an engineering beauty. Uh, you try telling these people that. <laughs> well, yes, but I didn't realise that it was actually built for the pumping station. I hadn't appreciated it. I used to live very close and never knew that. But it looks like a, a beautiful kind of sylvan valley, doesn't it? But no, it's all industry. OK, well, so that's the end of part one, Dan. We're going to finish here this episode. We've come along the canal. We've moved down to the river, which is so connected to the canal in that the water has been pumped up over centuries, literally, to fill the canal. And in episode two, we're going to find out more about the river and the creatures that live in it. Absolutely. There's so much happening in this valley, isn't it? It seems so kind of quiet, but there's so much history and so much going on. It's absolutely fabulous. We're going to meet otters and we might even meet beavers. Let's hope so. That'd be wonderful, wouldn't it? Thank you so much for the most brilliant day. It's been absolutely spectacular. Should we get back on the bike? Are you ready? Oh, yeah. Go on then. <laughs> well, that's it for this episode of Footprints. Thank you for joining me and don't forget you can listen to all the previous episodes anytime you like on your favourite podcast provider. You can find out more about Bathscape by visiting the website bathscape.co.uk. Footprints was hosted and produced by me, Pommy Harmer, and I hope to see you next month.